There's a awful lot of history behind the story of dragons. Most people think that dragons are purely mythological creatures. That the Chinese made them up, or that the Greeks made them up, or that the Romans and the Egyptians made them up, and that in the Christian Bale movie, that demon spawn, reign of fire, that that could never happen because there never were dragons. Uh, I know someone that says, uh, yeah, there were. And he's here to tell us all about it here, as he promised a couple of weeks ago. Usually on Tuesdays, we do uh, Michael Hitchborn from the Lepanto Institute. We talk about what's going on inside Catholic circles and uh, some of the corruptions going on. Today, let us talk about dragons with Mitter Hitchburn live. I believe he's at home today. Uh, Michael, you at home today? And how are you? I'm doing great, and I am at home today. Fantastic. So you've been out on the uh, on on the road. Uh, tell our, our listeners wh- what you have been busy and up to, and what they may find new before we get started at lepantoin dot org. Well, uh, yeah, I've I've been on the road. I've been uh, really busy with a, a new project. We're um, we're investigating Caritas Internationalis, getting ready to put out a report on them. Uh, Caritas, for your listeners who don't know is the Vatican-run umbrella agency for all of the international aid and development agencies of every bishop's conference in the world. Uh, and we have proof that Caritas Internationalis, which has a cardinal at its head, mm. is on the governing body of an international communist organization that is actively pushing abortion, homosexuality, and contraception. Um, so we're getting ready to put out a, a big report on that. Uh, I am currently getting ready to put together an article on, um, uh, let's just say the historic precedent for bishops forbidding their, their Catholic members from, from joining certain political parties. (laughs) That's going to be a, a fun article. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, that's, that's, uh, in a nutshell what I've been working on. I, I was in Arizona a few weeks ago. I uh, gave a talk on the Punic Wars oh. and how that yeah the the three Punic Wars between uh, Rome and and uh, Carthage and how the Punic Wars are a representation of spiritual warfare both in in the world uh, in the church and in the individual current spiritual warfare oh yeah wait, wait, give me a date uh, Punic Wars three centuries before Christ. Uh, two centuries. Two centuries. Okay. Uh, this is a uh, no. Uh, uh, this is not. Uh, um, maybe it is the Jagarath, uh The Jagaratharian, and what's the other? I'm trying to remember the other name of the, of the guy about the Punic Wars. We could do an entire show on that. Let's just put that for another day. Because right. yeah, because I read. Uh, okay, so the Roman history of it was written. Correct me if I'm wrong. By a Roman historian and a writer named Salus, right? Say that again. Salus. What about him? He wrote a history of the Jagarathan and one of the other wars. Those were the Punic Wars, I believe. 
Well, the Punic Wars were the three wars between Rome and Carthage. Yes. So, yeah, yeah there was another, um, you know, I've got a book at home, and I read it like 10 years ago about it. What an interesting, uh, fascinating topic. Well, let, 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 just give me a minute here. Give me a minute on, okay, so how is it that this would have been Caesar or emperor or um, uh, imperiarum Rome versus what was Carthage at the time? So Carthage was the world's superpower. It, uh, it had the largest navy. It controlled all the channels of commerce. Uh, it had port cities all over the Mediterranean, and it had the most cultural influence of any other city-state in the, in the known world at the time. Uh, Rome was still on the rise. They had a very formidable army, but their navy was uh, minuscule. It, it really – they didn't have much of a navy. And when the Punic Wars started, uh, the, the Carthaginians were they, – they were basically the uh, – if if you want to take San Francisco and New York City and wrap them into one major city state, that's that's Carthage. <laughs> um, no thanks. And I mean that in the fullest sense. <laughs> so then so, Rome, so the Rome were the good guys. Oh, absolutely, without any doubt. And and the thing is that uh, when you look at the the nature of the conflict, uh, it really does become a, a a war between heaven and hell, or a war between uh, what would become Christian Rome and the flesh, the devil, and the world. Mm. Interesting. You gave two talks on this. So three. We, three so we have lots to talk about. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, there's been no doubt here on, on, on this show, and you're in my conversation uh, for several years now, that we are in the midst. Well, you're always in the midst of a spiritual war. All right, the, the cross... Is a spiritual war. Either you're going to bear it or not, and, and if you're not going to bear it, then you're going to be on the on the wrong side of of history. Uh, but there's always been a spiritual war since Saint Michael, the archangel, and the other archangels kicked the demons out of paradise, and they settle here on this earth. You know, I am working on something that would just absolutely totally fa fascinate you. Um, <clears throat> To the, uh, to, uh, you might even want to try and take your hand at, at, at writing some of the episodes for this. So Fiorella, KV, and I are working on something. I'm not going to divulge exactly what it is. But my thought on this was, I'm watching the TV show Grimm. And I'm going like, you know, they're right there. This could be real world, Catholic-based, Christendom-based, God and his saints and people here on earth versus the demons and who they impersonate here on earth, right? Mm -hmm. So they're right there. <laughs> well, of course, it's secular TV, and of course, it's based in Portland, which is the maybe the epicenter of hell here on this continent <laughs> these days. So uh, I understand that they couldn't get there. So I'm like, okay, well, uh, uh, I could get you there. So I uh, wrote a couple of pages up. Named some characters, gave them some background, and sent them to my author friends, KV Turley and Fiorella Nash. And Fiorella was just, just going, This is brilliant. This is good. This is, I can't wait. When can we have a conversation? We must begin this. And I'm going, like, This is what we do here, Michael. We wade in to the, the media, which they think they own, 
And you don't even have to do this by definition. I mean, you don't have to go like, this is a Catholic uh, superhero detective show or whatever. Just do it. You don't even have to say it. Just do it. Just do it and do it well. Make it really, really good. Great plot lines, good characters, great casting, all that stuff. And just freaking do it. People yeah. will see. Um, and, you know, I was writing this. I was thinking about, you know, I said, oh, man, Hitchporn would love this. <laughs> yeah. Especially about what we're going to talk about today because we're going to have a couple episodes about dragons. So people have, uh, I'm sure, come today to hear all about as we advertise it, everything you ever wanted to know about dragons, but we're afraid to ask. <laughs> so you built it up in all our minds three weeks ago. So where do we start? Where do we start? Well, first of all, uh, the the existence of dragons really shouldn't be in dispute. Um, dragons have existed throughout the entire history of, of the world. Um, and it's just a matter of understanding what they are. Uh, we're not talking about mythical beasts that have magical powers and uh, give sage advice to those who seek them. Uh, that's that's fantasy. But dragons, uh, properly understood, are extremely large lizards, and they uh, they they have existed. Um, for instance, Marco Polo. You're familiar with Marco Polo. You know, you know who Marco Polo was right? Marco. Polo. <laughs> yes, of course. So Marco Polo wrote a book uh, after he had traveled to Persia, Asia, China, Indonesia. Uh, he, he went all over the place in, in Asia. <clears throat> and he wrote a book about his travels. And the book is called The Travels of Marco Polo. What do you know? Um, in part two... Chapter 40, Marco Polo reports what he describes as huge serpents. And I'm just going to read you an excerpt. He said, Leaving the city of Yachi and traveling 10 days in a westerly direction, you reach the province of Car Carazan, which is also the name of the chief city. Here are seen huge serpents about 10 paces in length, which is about 30 feet and 10 spans, about 8 feet, girt of the body. At the forepart, near the head, you have two short legs, having three claws like those of a tiger, with eyes larger than a four-penny loaf, and very glaring. The jaws are wide enough to swallow a man, and teeth are, are large and sharp, and their whole appearance is formidable, that neither man nor any kind of animal can approach them without terror. Others are met with uh, others are met with of a smaller size, being eight, six, or five paces long, and the following method is used for taking them. In the in the daytime, by reason of great heat, they lurk in caverns, from whence at night they issue to seek their food, and whatever beast they meet with, they can lay hold of, whether tiger, wolf, or any other, they devour after which they drag themselves towards some lake, spring, or water, or river in order to drink. By their motion in this way, <clears throat> along the shore and their vast weight, they make a deep impression, as if a heavy beam had been drawn along the sands. I mean, this is extremely detailed information. He goes on. Those whose employment it is to hunt them observe the track by which they are most frequently accustomed to go, 
and fix into the ground several pieces of wood armed with sharp iron spikes, which they cover with the sand in such a manner as not to be perceptible. When, therefore, the animals make their way towards the places they usually hunt, they are wounded by these instruments and speedily killed. The cows, as soon as they perceive them to be dead, set up to scream, and and the, uh, this serves as a signal to the hunters who advance the spot and proceed and separate, separate the skin from the flesh, taking care immediately to secure the gall, which is most highly esteemed in medicine, which is very interesting. Mm. In cases of the bite of a mad dog, a penny weight of it dissolved in wine is administered. It is also useful in accelerating parturation when the labor pains of a woman have come on. A small quantity of it being applied to carbuncles, pustules, and other eruptions on the body and they and are presently dispersed, and it is efficacious in many other complaints. The flesh also of the animal is sold as a at a dear rate, being thought of thought to have a high high flavor or higher flavor than any other kind of meat, and by all persons is is esteemed a delicacy. So Marco Polo described what very, very much sounds like a dragon. Wow. Um, it's a serpent, a two-legged serpent. And what's interesting about this is that in, uh, in medieval texts, when they talk about dragons, or even in paintings of dragons, you see them depicted as what look like two-legged serpents. Uh, even if you look at old paintings of, of uh, St. George, like the painting of St. George uh, by Raphael, you'll see a serpent with two legs. So the, um, the depictions of dragons definitely seem to span not just uh, many different cultures, but even the descriptions of them seem to have a lot of similarities as well. Uh, and many people don't know this, but Daniel, the prophet Daniel, killed a dragon. Okay. Do you know that? No, but let me, let me get some more, uh, add some detail on what you just said. Let's come back to Daniel in a moment. Uh -huh. You said that the gall is prized. Um, don't we learn in the book of Tobit, isn't it the gall from uh, the the beast that Tobit's son or Tobi uh, uh, Tobias' son takes and because uh, it starts to smell, right? Uh, isn't it the gall that they use for some kind of salve? I forget how how we use it, but isn't it the gall of the fish? I believe it is, yes. So there's some biblical precedent there for the gall to be used. That's the first thing I thought of. And then when you were describing the size, G.K. Chesterton's favorite book of the Old Testament is the book of Job. You know, at the end of the book of Job, mm -hmm. uh, Job describes, uh, he calls it a leviathan. And it's almost as wide as the Jordan River. And I forget the uh, dimension he gives to it, but he describes it just like you just did. <laughs> right. Uh, in fact, there are two creatures that are described in the book of Job that have very strange uh, or familiar sounding features. I'll get back to those in, in a moment. Okay. Um, but in the book of Daniel, so Daniel first defeats an idol that is worshipped by the Babylonians called Bel, B-E-L. And uh, after he defeats 
the golden idol of Bell, um, what Daniel tells him, he says, I'm not going to bow down to a, a dead God, a God that's only made out of stuff. It's not, it's not a living God. So then after he proves to the king that, because what's going on, they would put out meat and bread and all kinds of food on this table in a room with the idol in there. And then they would leave the room and they'd come back and all the food would be gone. And of course, the understanding was that the idol was eating all of that food. And Daniel says, no, I'll prove to you what's going on. So he scatters flour all over the floor and they, they put the food uh, on the table and they leave. And then they put a seal on the door so that they can prove the door's never been opened. Okay. And they go back in. And the king says, oh, see, the food is gone. He, he, he starts bowing down and worshiping and oh, mighty bell. And Daniel just laughs at him and says, come, king, look at this. And he points to the ground and he says, what do you see? And he says, I see footprints of all sizes coming out of this little area, this part of the wall. And he says, there's a secret doorway here where all of the wives and children of the priests of Bell would sneak in there and eat the food. <laughs> and the king gets really mad. But then he says, um, he says, okay, well, you say that I, I worship a, a, a God who is not a living God, but what about this? And let's see, where is that? Oh, here we go. So the king puts the, uh, the priests of Bel to death. And here's what scripture says. It says, and there was a great dragon in that place and the Babylonians worshiped him. And the king said to Dave, to Daniel, Behold, thou canst not say now that this is not a living God. Adore him, therefore. And Daniel said, I adore the Lord my God, for he is the living God. But that is no living God. But give me leave, O king, and I will kill this dragon without sword or club. And the king said, I give thee leave. Then Daniel took pitch and fat and hair and boiled them together and made lumps and put them into the dragon's mouth, and the dragon burst asunder. And he said, Behold him whom you worshipped. And when the Babylonians had heard this, they, they took great indignation, and be, being gathered together against the king, they said, The king has become a Jew. And so then they, they got together and they cast him into the, into the den, the lion's den, to be eaten by the lions, but the lions just laid down at his feet. But the, uh, the description here is a very large, and they called it a dragon. They don't give too much of a description of this thing, but they go through the detail of describing this thing as living. Okay. And something that Daniel killed by feeding it pitch, fat, and hair. Uh, and it's, it's gust, guts burst open. So whatever... Whatever he fed it, it had an adverse reaction and it, uh, it, it exploded from the inside. So here you have in scripture a description of what is definitely a real living creature. Right. Uh, and again, you have Marco Polo talking about this dragon, these dragons in, in Asia. And you have, uh, um, as we pointed out in the book of Job, uh, the description of, of what sound like dragons. So what, what is a dragon then? What are these creatures? 
let's let's go to the book of Job. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but, but, while you're finding that, a quick note, yeah. Michael Hitchborn of the Lepanto Institute, uh, go to his website, sign up for his uh, his email uh, uh, newsletter blast and for his Friday exclusive video chats that you can join at L-E-P-A-N-T-O, Lepanto, I-N, dot org. And one more note on, on, on Marco Polo. Uh, Netflix, well, I had Netflix, made a series in 2013, 14, and 15 about Marco Polo. And uh, uh, I looked it up to see how accurate it was. Marco Polo was actually made a prince by Kabbalah Khan. Khan Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Khan kind of adopted him as a stepson. He loved him um, until, you know, Polo was like, well, I have to go back to Christendom. And then Kabbalah Khan didn't like him. <laughs> but he, but he yeah. let him leave. Um, so he actually lived, he actually lived, Marco Polo did. And look, Michael, one thing that we know about, uh, and he wasn't just in China, China, one of the places that Marco Polo went to, which gives me uh, more cause to believe that account, one of the places that he went to was Mongolia. Oh, right. To yeah. this, that's where Kabbalah Khan is. To this day, look, the Mongolians have remained and retained their sovereignty. No one knows what's in Mongolia, and you're talking to a country bigger than the state of Texas. You cannot go into Mongolia and film anything. You can ask them. You can apply to the Film Commission of Mongolia, and every once in a while, but if they do let you, they will escort you with the army. Well, I watched a movie. I watched the special, uh, the special features of a movie, and they went like, dude, it was like being under, it was the strangest thing. The army escorted the film crew everywhere they went, and if they tried huh. to make a wrong turn, like, uh-uh, you can't go there. So heaven only knows what's in the heart of Mongolia. No one knows except Mongolians, and they don't talk. Oh, that's interesting. I yes, it is. That. It is, and huh. that's all true. What I just told you. So uh, I like the part of the story that uh, that uh, Marco Polo, and he tries to convert Kabbalah Khan. Right. You know, he was a Catholic, by Marco Polo. At the end of the day, you know, people forget it was the Pope that sent him on that mission. I think it was the Pope. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he was a Catholic. He was a, he was a missionary, basically. So, uh, fascinating story that our dragon tale begins with Marco Polo. Okay, now we're at the book of Job, Mr. Hitchburn. Right, and it was Marco Polo that brought noodles to Italy. Pasta, right. Pasta, yeah. <laughs> so, the book of Job, uh, chapter 40, verse 10. Behold, behemoth, whom I made with thee. So that's a very interesting line. Whom I made with thee. He eateth grass like an ox. His strength is in his loins and is his force in the navel of his belly. He sitteth up his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his testicles are wrapped together. His bones are like pipes of brass. His gristle like plates of iron. He is the beginning of the ways of God who made him. He will apply his sword. To him the mountains bring forth grass, and all the beasts of the field shall play. He sleepeth under the shadow in the cover of the reed, in the moist places. The shades cover his shadow, the willow of the brook shall compass him about. Behold, he will drink up a river, and not wonder. And he thrusteth that the Jordan may run into his mouth." In his eyes, uh, in his eyes, as with a hook, 
he shall take him and bore through his nostrils and stakes. Canst thou draw out the Leviathan with a hook, or canst thou tie his tongue with a cord? Canst thou put a ring in his nose and bore through his jaw with a buckle? He will make many supplications. Uh, will he make many supplications to thee, speak soft words to thee? Will he make a covenant with thee, and wilt thou take him to be a servant forever? So it goes on like this. But um, what's interesting is that when you pay attention to the description of Behemoth, mm-hmm. okay, his strength is in his loins, his tail is like a cedar tree. Uh, his he he basically eats the top of trees and then lies in the river, which goes up around him whenever he goes in. That describes something that's so huge that he displaces the water and causes it to rise. That's a, can't, that's that's a lot of ballast. That's a whole lot of ballast. So if you imagine something that large, something that has a long neck that can reach the top of trees mm-hmm. and has a tail like a cedar tree, mm-hmm. uh, I can only think of one creature, and it's one of the sauropods. The long-necked dinosaurs, you know, like the, uh, the, the Brachiosaurus. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> or what used to be called the Brontosaurus. <laughs> uh, very, very interesting description. Now, of course, if you look at the modern, uh, the modern subtext of many modern Bibles, they call it a hippopotamus. <laughs> I, you know, I've heard that uh, recently, as a matter of fact. Let, let's get a couple of historical facts uh, on the table here with Michael Hitchborn of the Lepano Institute and everything you ever wanted to know about dragons, but we're afraid to ask. Do you believe or do you concur with those that say outside of the book of Genesis that there are many believe that the book of Job is the oldest book in the Old Testament? I think it's entirely possible. In fact, there is there is speculation that the book of Job um, precedes the flood, that Job was actually one of the um, – it was an antediluvian. Okay, so that's where I was going with this. So per the Hitchburn theory – which you and I have discussed here, and you're supposed mm-hmm. to write a movie about this. Per the Hitchburn theory, if Job is indeed antediluvian, then it is entirely probable that he is describing the beast and roam the earth and the abominations that God went, all right, uh, you, you, you gong. Uh, for all we know, and this is kind of where my series, my, uh, my, my serial with Fiorella and KV go, uh, for all we know, we get a little mention of demons lying with uh, with maidens uh, and the Nephilim. Uh, for all we know, the demons, from what we know of what they do today, which is to impersonate animal-like creatures or what we, in our imaginations, think uh, extraterrestrials who don't exist— might look like it's entirely possible that not only the Nephilim making uh, chimeras of men, but we're also making chimeras of animals. We're assisting in the making of chimeras of animals. Mm. Uh, so uh, anything antediluvian, and the, another part of the antediluvian story, now when you hear the word anti, it's Latin for before, pre. So when you say he's in the antechamber, well, it means he's in the chamber, the little one before the big major one. Anything that's antediluvian uh, is kind of covered by the book of Genesis, but not everything is covered. 
but to me fits right into the destruction of the world. Uh, uh, and, and I find it one of the most fascinating things of all that the three pyramids in Giza survive okay. to this day almost untouched, it seems. And then every other effort to build a pyramid post-flood and for any king, name him, it doesn't matter which one it is, they're in ruins. They crumble. They don't stand the test. The sandstorms take them out. But not the Pyramid of Giza and not its two little brothers. Uh, there are lines inside the Pyramid of Giza that show either re either increasing or receding water lines, meaning the Pyramid of Giza was flooded. So mm -hmm. if the Book of Job is antediluvian, that adds an entirely new, uh, to me anyway, entirely new twist to this story here uh, of the dragons. The only question that would remain is, well, how did any of the dragons survive the flood unless Noah took them on the ark? Right. Well, and, and again, you have this line, Behold behemoth whom I made with thee. Why would God insert that line in there? I mean, it, it, it seems almost like a no-brainer that uh, if, if it's understood that all of the animals were created by God mm -hmm. uh, over the six days of creation, which is what the Jews would have understood at this time, yep. why would God insert the phrase, whom I made with thee, uh, in this portion of Scripture? And I think it's because God knows and understands all things and also understands and knows that at some point in time, there are going to be people who doubt that all of the creatures were created by God over a certain period of time. Right. And or that even man and other creatures would exist at the same time. So if the idea is that the dinosaurs pre-existed man and did not coincide with him, which, by the way, the archaeological evidence says otherwise, um, if you look at this phrase, it's almost as if God is speaking to those today who deny that dinosaurs and man coexisted. Behold, behemoth, whom I made with thee. And if you read the description, read it very carefully, it sounds an awful lot like a sauropod. Um, he also talks about the, this creature Leviathan who resides in the waters. That's It's uh, got an impenetrable skin, uh, a massive girth, and it's uh, got a ferocious visage. So, um, you know, scripture usually says, well, maybe it's a crocodile or some whale or some sea monster. Mm -hmm. But it, to me, if if I'm thinking about this and you'll, you'll look at the uh, kinds of creatures that existed in uh, dinosaur books, you know, the ones that, that lived in the ocean. Right. You've got like the, um, the plesiosaur <laughs> that it's got the little flippers and the long neck and the spiky teeth. Um could be something like that or it could be like the uh that that giant creature the the i can't even remember what it's called but if you remember jurassic world it's the one that leaps out of the water and, uh, and <laughs> right. the shark on the i can't remember which which creature that is but you know that thing's huge and you you consider what that was uh in relation to what they're talking about here. And if, if we're talking about dinosaurs and man coexisting, uh, then that would make sense. Sure. And would. You could look at the, that kind of creature and say, Hey, you know, it seems like this kind of thing 
may have uh, been what he's describing. So this also all comes back to, well, what makes you think that dinosaurs and man were coexisting? And here's the thing. If dinosaurs and man were coexisting, then all the stories of dragons makes perfect sense. Yes, it does. Makes perfect sense. But you have to look at the evidence. Uh, There are several uh, dried up riverbeds, especially in Texas, where they have dinosaur tracks in mud. And along with those dinosaur tracks, you have human footprints in the same layer of mud. Not just near them. Sometimes they follow them, walk side by side, and sometimes the footprints actually cross or go into the dinosaur footprints too. The human footprints do. Mm. So you have human footprint evidence that man and dinosaurs coexisted. Um, we have archaeological evidence. There are ancient um, Babylonian scrolls, or not scrolls, but uh, seal, you know, like a, the kind of seal that you'd stamp on something to show that, hey, you know, this is an authentic thing. Yes, yes. They have Babylonian seals that show what very much look like sauropods, long-necked, long-tailed dinosaurs. You have um, uh, certain Roman uh, pictures that show long-necked, long-tailed creatures look a lot like sauropods. Uh, in, um, I think it's in Indonesia, there's, a, uh, there's an ancient temple that was discovered, and it has all these depictions of creatures all over the temple, and in one, there is a picture that looks almost exactly like a stegosaurus. It's got the, the bony plates on, on the back, and it's got the little spiky table, tail at the end. Looks a lot like a stegosaurus. Wow. So, you, you know, you can look at archaeological evidence. You can look at um, evidence in the, in the earth, you know, the footprints and that kind of thing. And then you have all of the cultural stories. Every single civilization on the planet has stories about dragons. So you, you start to put the pieces together and you go, there, there's something to this. You know, not there's something out- to this idea that dinosaurs could have been dragons and that they coexisted with man. And, and all of a sudden, a lot of things just kind of open up to you and you go, wow, this makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. Now, the same Maximilian Colbay Center and its uh, groundbreaking, magnificent series on the actual creation called Foundations Restored, uh, there is an entire episode of Foundations Restore, where they explore this actual question. What is the evidence for, because people, the whole, uh, the basis of Foundations Restored is the earth is not billions and billions and billions. It's thousands of years old. Genesis is history. The flood was not local. It was global. It actually happened. And there is, uh, there is biological, there is geographical, and there is astronomical evidence for it irrefutable and one of the things in one of the uh, uh chapters or episodes by the way you can get foundations restored as a digital streaming download or as dvds L- uh, folks if you're new to this show or have or just started listening to last year we haven't promoted it as much as we should keith jones uh did awesome animation on this just a wonderful series uh, uh high quality top to you'd think 
someone in Hollywood made it without all the evil. That's how good it is. Uh, go to crusadechannel.com forward slash Adam. And when we give you these URLs, that's because we have affiliate accounts with all these people. And we get credit for this. So it helps to support the network. So crusadechannel.com forward slash Adam. And in Foundations Restore, you know, they asked a question. Did uh, the dragon stories basically, or did they, is this the story of dinosaurs? And did man uh, exist at the same time as dinosaurs? And I think they made a pretty compelling case that, yes, man did exist at the time of dinosaurs. And the dinosaurs and man actually coexisted, uh, which is easily explainable, again, by the flood. The flood mm -hmm. explained. It is a natural, logical, uh, chronological, uh, astronomical, uh, biological, geographical explanation that perfectly, perfectly comports with the actual text of Genesis. Uh, there's a there, there, there's a sermon, and I'd have to call Steve Cunningham and ask him to find it because every time this comes up about every two years, Father Wolf gave a sermon. Uh, I think it was actually a mission because it was very long. It's about an hour long, and he asked this question, Michael. You may have heard it, and he begins the uh, the discussion with the first thing we need to, to to know is that Genesis is history, and he goes, well, "How do we know that?" And he cites an anthropologist, a guy that was a secular anthropologist who was exploring this question, Bill something, or I can't remember his name. He wrote a book about it. And he goes, well, Bill starts to, to, to wonder, well, then, was there a fl uh, flood? Was Noah, did Noah actually repopulate the human species? And what evidence is there of it? Well, the mitochondrial DEA evidence should be just the knockout punch. Because the mitochondrial DNA, if you backtrack it, and you can do this now, you have the technology and the science and the computers that can calculate it. The mitochondrial DNA from the mother's side says that you can only go back about how many generations. And if you count them back, you wind up about 5,000 years B.C., boom, you got Eve. That's about how, that's as far back as the replications of her DNA can go, okay? That's one thing. The second thing about uh, Genesis and the dinosaurs and uh, the, the history of it is, is that the, um, <clears throat> the geologic evidence for the, uh, for the flood, supposedly, we're supposed to look at the Grand Canyon and go like, it took billions and billions and billions of years of the deposit of sediments, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, the sediment was, you know, every day to have a flood every year and it would lay the water, it lay the, the, this down and that. And then the river came and cut through there, blah, 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 blah. This is completely demolished by the eruption of Mount St. Helens and, uh, and some other volcanoes. A volcano that's very tall will have a snow cap. At the top of the volcano, when it erupts, the snow cap will melt. When the snow cap melts, you're going to get a flood because you're going to have thousands of years of snow and ice. You're going to get a flood, and everyone knows it. And it's going to be preceded by what's called a periclastic cloud. The flood waters are going to be hot because they've been melted, and now the, you know, the, the volcano is heating them. What was left after Mount St. Helens? A canyon, 150 feet deep, and I forget how many football fields wide, complete with sedimentary layers. Yep. And it did it because all of the dust from the eons 
in the ice and everything that the water picks up along the way. It's a natural phenomenon that a heavier sediment, heavier element-based sediment, will sink to the bottom. The lighter stuff rises to the top. That's just, and they can, you could do this in an aquarium. They, they, I've seen demos of it in an aquarium. You don't need billions and billions and billions of years to make a Grand Canyon is the point. Right. So, so um, I think that, that this is all provable uh, and, and that the history, again, get foundations restored. Get the whole 17 series, 70-part uh, series. If you're homeschooling your kids, you want to teach them the history of the Earth and good sound science and geography and, astro and, ast and uh, astronomy, get foundations restored. I'll give you one more astronomical piece of evidence that the Earth is young. The Van Allen belts, the field around the Earth that protect us from UVB and UVA aren't going to be here very much longer. Neither is the, new, is the magnetic pole. A magnetic pole, just like they tell us uh, they can date these things using carbon-14 half-life dating. Well, guess what, genius? We can also date how old that magnetic field is, can't we, Mr. Hitchburn? Because we can go by the half-lifes because magnetism decays over time. And if you backtrack the half-life to the maximum amount of, magneti of magnetism that could possibly be in the magnetic field around the Earth, what do you get? Gee, 5,000 years B.C. Wait a minute. I've heard this before. Right. So, no, um, Foundations Restored does a great job of it. Anyone that wanted to make a, based in reality, uh, dinosaur movie could easily figure out a way using uh, some fictional time travel technique to just bring back what was existing around the time of Noah and just bring it forward. So, um where at we? Where are we at our, our dragon story? Are we going to talk about Martha and St. George and some of the other dragons? We can talk about that, but before I do that, what I want to talk about first okay. is why it's possible that man and dinosaurs coexisted scientifically. Okay, We've, we've given the archaeological evidence. We've talked about it from a, a paleontological point of view. Okay. But what about what about some of the scientific biological evidence that we could put forward. And I, I will tell you, I think the evidence can be very easily seen in uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, and then you can, you can find a scientific explanation that fits it. First of all, what is a dinosaur or a dragon? It's a large lizard. Okay. Yep. It's a large reptile. Little known fact is that reptiles yep continue to grow from the moment they they are created and they you know they they're in an egg they continue to grow from that moment all the way to the time that they die which would seem to indicate that a dinosaur is a really 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 old reptile mm. okay uh well what would what would cause a reptile to live that long there are several factors first of all we know that a dinosaur could not possibly live in our current atmosphere. It would suffocate. If you were to take a Brachiosaurus and plunk it down in lower Manhattan, it would collapse under its own weight and it would soon suffocate. It would die because the air is too thin. There's not enough atmospheric buoyancy to support the weight of the dinosaur and there is uh, not enough oxygen to saturate the skin 
and to get into the lungs of the dinosaur in order for it to keep its oxygen levels up. It would suffocate. Furthermore, we have evidence in, in uh, the imprints uh, in stone of insects, very large insects. We've got dragonflies with a two-and-a-half-foot wingspan. And if you were to plunk that dragonfly right in the middle of your backyard, it would sit there on the ground, and then eventually it would suffocate and die. Because the air is too thin, there's not enough atmospheric buoyancy for that dragonfly to actually fly. It wouldn't be able to lift off. So you take that evidence and you say, well, something atmospherically must have been different. And even the the evolutionists say, yeah, the atmosphere had to have been denser, more oxygen-rich. Uh, and what they posit is that the atmosphere was about 2.2 atmospheres denser. Wow. So, Or, or at 2, 2.2 atmospheres, which is also interesting because that is the, the setting that they put people in hyperbaric chambers for, like burn victims, mm-hmm. in order to accelerate the healing process. So we know that when the atmosphere is denser and more oxygen-rich, the body heals a lot faster. We also learned that people, or the creatures in there, the aging process slows, and even in some cases can be slightly reversed. We also know that ultraviolet light is one of the primary factors in the aging process. So if you avoid ultraviolet light uh, and you live in a denser atmosphere, you can live a lot longer. Take all of that. If the atmospheric conditions were just right along those lines, Mm -hmm. then it makes sense that dinosaurs would be very old reptiles that were able to grow as they did and live as long as they did because the atmosphere was different. So what does this have to do with Genesis? What did Noah see right after the floodwaters receded? Saw a rainbow. Saw a rainbow, right. Why is that significant? We see rainbows all the time. So why would it be significant for Noah to see a rainbow unless he had never seen one before? Bingo. So what happens if you've never seen a rainbow before? Why would he never have seen a rainbow? Well, the atmosphere must have been different. Okay? What evidence do we have that the atmosphere was different? What was the very first thing that Noah did after he got off the ark? Uh, Went and grew some grapes and made some wine. Yeah. And then what happened? (laughs) He got got, wasted. (laughs) He got plowed. So you're going to tell me that the most just man in all of the world, the entire world, the one who God preserved, the first thing he's going to do is just go get plastered? No, I don't think so. I think he drank what he was used to drinking. And what happens, Mr. Church, if you're on an airplane and you drink what you would normally drink while you're uh, sitting in a pub? Well, you would get wasted. Yeah, you're going to get loopy quick because of the uh, because of the lack of oxygen in atmosphere. Of course, you're in a pressurized cabin. Right? Right. Now, if you weren't in a pressurized cabin, yeah, you're in big trouble. So now we have two pieces of evidence that show that uh, the atmosphere changed after the flood. Mm-hmm. So everybody wonders, well, where did the dinosaurs go after the flood? Well, there's your answer. 
if the atmosphere changed and these creatures were not living as long and the atmosphere was no longer uh, assisting in their development uh, their, and, and supporting their girth, well, that's where the dinosaurs went. They weren't wiped out with the flood. They just were never allowed to grow to be as large again. And then, of course, you you have all of the different cultural legends of dragons. And these cultural legends of dragons, they they talk about the ancient ones, you know, the ancient ones that were huge and and massive. But then, in the in the modern in, in the context of their current timeline, oh, you have dragons, but they're they're smaller now. Every single time, if you go through all of the history of these different cultures, they all talk about these different dragons at different periods. And the ones that they talk about in their context of being the ones we have today, they're smaller. So now we can go to St. George. We can go to Martha. St. George slew a dragon. Uh, when, when he was traveling from one city to the next and, uh, all the depictions show this. It's funny, you know. You 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 look at the uh, the paintings of the dragon that that Saint George slew, and it doesn't look like that big. It's maybe the size of a Komodo dragon. It's right. not. Uh, it's not this massive fire breathing beast that you think of in in mythological dragon tech, uh, terms. And by the so, way, if I could just invade quickly here, uh, Michael, we draw the distinction as Christians and creationists. Believers that God's word is actually God's word, and it's inerrant and it's true. We draw the distinction between some creature evolving and a creature mutating. It is perfectly logical that if a dinosaur did survive, because one they were on the ark, uh, that they would mutate. They would not evolve. Their nature would remain the same. That, but their substance um, or their or their form would be altered. They would mutate to survive, and it only take one generation. Well, not not mutate. I think mutation is the wrong word. What you're looking for is that they would adapt. Okay, adapt. And, well, I think they use the term mutation in uh, Foundations Restored. Maybe I'm using it improperly. It would still be the same dinosaur. It just wouldn't be as big. Right. It would not be as big uh, because right. it couldn't survive. And you think about the amount of food that it would have to eat when it's used to eating the tops of trees. Uh, it can't kind of find that kind of uh, a, a food supply that close to the ground. So there are many factors there uh, which make it entirely uh, logical and, entirely, and, and, and you can entirely, you can absolutely explain it. Just like you can explain the mutation from or, or the adaption of some animals that may fly from one continent to the other. And we know that their kin or their relatives, well, we, we try to figure out, well, how is it that they, that, that they look different, have different plumage for birds and what have you. Well, they adapted to that particular uh, a, a topographical or a geographic surrounding, so it makes uh, it, 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 it makes perfect sense. But what we don't see anywhere in any of the fossil records that they that we have, and it doesn't exist, there is never a transition, right? As they and that's what they call evolution. Um, these biped 
lizard-like creatures that we uh, the, the, that are the dra dragons do not change into chickens. You know, some of them are, the, the chickens are actual dragons because if you look at a chicken's feet, you know, they're kind of like they're leathery and they look like uh, they look like you might see the the feet of reptiles. Um, that is a bird that adapted to its surroundings and its feet changed. It's as simple as that. It's not a lizard. It never was a lizard. Lizards are cold-blooded. Uh, no reptile ever becomes a mammal. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, it, it's funny because if you if you look at these creatures genetically, um, you know, you have fish, you've got whales, you've got uh, amphibians, you know, uh, salamanders and whatnot. The genetic code of each of those creatures uh, when you stretch out the genome and you look at it carefully, the portion for the, like the, the, what would be the forearms, okay. okay. The, the, the shoulders and the, the forearms or on a fish, the, the fins, the genes for each of those parts are different. So you can't even say that the genetic change of these creatures had to do with those particular parts. They're not the same. So it's it's uh it's it's really kind of funny that they say well you know over billions of years uh, these parts adapted to become other parts well you can't say that because it's not even the same set of genes that's not even that part that's right <laughs> anatomically speaking so uh, the the whole evolutionary mindset is is. Uh, it just unravels every time you look at it carefully, and and the problem is that they they rely on people not looking at it carefully. Well, and they also rely on people making evolution an article of the modern world and an article of the religion of modernity. It's an right. article of faith. You got to make the leap of faith, you know. But as Chesterton points out in the in in the Everlasting Man, if you guys want to read a book that's entertaining about uh, that destroys. Evolution. Read the Everlasting Man. Right. And 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 he uses humor and of course fact to do it. Uh, but you know, as uh, as he says, because uh, he begins the whole work with the cave painting, and he goes, the only thing we know about the cave painting of the man and the spear and the deer is that the man could paint and the deer couldn't. Yes. <laughs> the, right. The yeah. Only fact that you can take away from that is that a man painted and the deer didn't. Yep. There's no painting of the deer watching the man. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, unless it's a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, true that. <clears throat> okay. Michael Hitchborn of the Lopano Institute, everything you ever wanted to know about dragons but were afraid to ask. Um, I think that we've answered uh, all the questions uh, about whether or not dragons did exist, yes. Uh, well, how could they have been these ginormous creatures? Well, this is how. Why wouldn't they, uh, okay, why wouldn't they exist today? They do. And they have adapted to their surroundings. The only thing that you really didn't address uh, per Noah and the change in the atmosphere, and they actually cover this in Foundations Restored too, is, okay, well, how? Why? Why did the atmosphere change? Now, do you did, did you explore that? Do you explore it? Sure. Okay. So, why did the atmosphere change? I I have a theory. Um, 
And it starts with the idea of Pangea. You know, you all of the different continents all came together. Yes. And, and they fit perfectly. If you were to study the soil samples of the west coast of, of Africa and compare it with the east coast of, of um, South, South America, America the, the soil samples are the same. So it's it's definitely part of the same original continent. The question is what happened? If you look at an oceanographic map of the the uh, Atlantic Ocean, mm-hmm. there's a giant baseball stitch that runs north and south midway between Europe and America and Africa and South America. That's right. That's exactly correct. You can see it from satellites too. They've they've yep. shown it to us. Yeah. So you can see it. It's very it's very <clears throat> readily available, very apparent. Uh, and it's called the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. There is only one interruption in the entire Mid-Atlantic Ridge, and that is the island of Iceland. Now, Iceland is a very interesting continent because or, or, or island for many reasons. First of all, it's geothermically warmed. Yep. Because it's in constant contact with the magma of the Earth. There are many volcanoes on Iceland, uh, and there are many hot springs on Iceland. It's actually not covered in ice the way its name indicates. It's It's got a rather warm climate because of its contact with the magma of the Earth. If you look at an oceanographic view of the uh, the island shelf of Iceland, it's concave. Like a like an impact, it looks a lot like a crater. Mm. What else is interesting is that there are two um, elements most commonly found in meteors. Those two elements are iridium and nickel, and there are high concentrations of both iridium and nickel in Iceland. What else is interesting is that Jewish cosmology talks about how most of the Earth's waters were beneath the surface of the earth. They called them the uh, the, the depths or, or the the gates of the deep yes. in Genesis. What else is interesting is that if you look at the sequence of events of the flood, it says that the gates of the deep opened and then it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. So first the gates opened and then it rained. The floodwaters likely came from beneath the surface of the earth. So what does this have to do with the atmosphere? If Iceland is a meteor, can you imagine a meteor the size of Iceland impacting the earth? Yes. It would create a massive crack. Now, if most of the earth's waters were beneath the surface and Iceland penetrated the the continent, the, the crust of the earth and forced a crack, those waters would push right up through that crack, and they would force the continents apart very quickly. What else is interesting, if you look at um, if you look at a map of North and South America, on the east coast of North and South America, there is a long continental shelf. Yes. A long, gradual continental shelf. But if you look at the west coast, you'll see that there is a very short continental shelf. You'll also see that there's a mountain range that spans from the very top of Alaska follows the contour of both continents, North and South America, follows the contour of from Alaska all the way through Mexico, uh, down through Central and South America, yep. and all the way down to the, to the southernmost tip of 
Chile. It's almost as if those continents were p- pushed and like a bulldozer gathered all of the stuff on one side and then it makes sense. Makes Michael, I don't know if you moved or if the cell tower is moving, So, it, but you're uh, you're going to have to say that again because we only got about 5% of it. You're, uh, you're yes. dropping out. Uh, how, how, what was the last thing you heard from me? Okay, you started about uh, from the top of Alaska, and then you started working your way down, oh. and that's when you started okay. breaking up. <clears throat> Okay, so the top of Alaska, there's a mountain range all the way down to the southern part of Chile. Um, Chile. 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 You don't say that right. My uh, my uh, daughter, number three, my adopted daughter will get very upset. Oh, okay. Well, I'll have a bowl of Chile the next time I get hungry. <laughs> yes. Um, if, you, if you look at the atmosphere, you know, the atmosphere was denser. It was, and by the way, it extends to, to that ginormous blob at the bottom called Antarctica. Yes, it does. There's a massive, people don't know. There's a massive mountain range. I think it's 16,000 feet tall is the highest point on Antarctica Mm -hmm. too. So this all comes back to the question of the atmosphere. What does this have to do with the atmosphere? If Iceland is a meteor that impacted the earth and caused that massive crack, can you imagine what such a meteor would do to the atmosphere? Also, if there was a wall of water that was shooting up through that crack, because what happens with displacement if you have continents pushing down on the Earth's oceans? It's going to cause, like, like a balloon, it's going to cause a, a burst, but it's going to be forcing itself down on those waters as they're rushing up. And those waters are going to go up into the stratosphere and it will call it, it'll collect with the water the, the vapors up there and then bring them down so the entire atmosphere is going to change you're going to have a massive sudden climate change ooh there's that word there it is um with such a meteoric impact and that that i think is why the atmosphere changed you're also going to have this massive amount uh, precipitation that we just heard about. And through this massive amount of precipitation, and they cover this in Foundations Restored, there's going to be what they uh, now, why are they always warning us about the nuclear winter if five nuclear bombs go off, you the sun won't get through for 60 years or whatever? Well, because the book of Genesis and the fact that we have had an ice age and we know we had an ice age, or more particularly, we had a great freeze after the great flood uh, is, again, easily explainable by, um, by cosmology. And that is that after all, after this meteor exploded and after this massive amount of, uh, of gases went up into the atmosphere, uh, and when it began to cool, it formed clouds. Clouds rained. That's why you get 40 days of rain across the entire continent. If you have 40 days of rain because you have heavy cloud cover and you have the earth at its current angle, uh, 23.4 degrees, uh, the northern and southern parts of that angle aren't going to get any sun. It's going to get wicked freaking cold. 
Because it's right. got cloud cover, it has no UV penetrating. It only makes sense then that the rain north of like Arkansas or so uh, would not be rain. It would be frozen rain and sleet changed to snow. And if it rained for 40 days, do the math. What would your ice pack be? Your ice Very pack, cold. yeah, your your snow ice pack would be thousands upon thousands of feet thick. Wait a minute, this sounds like a glacier, whereas Bear Grylls would call it a glacier. And mm -hmm. exactly as you would expect, after the continent separated and you had this massive amount of ice, what happens when, well, the clouds do dissipate, the UV from the sun ultimately does eradicate the cloud cover because it's all the the moisture that was uh, there has now rained out. Um, the clouds begin to dissipate. The sun comes out. The earth begins to heat up. We don't have ice ages in Arkansas. The ice right. melts and retreats. As it melts and retreats, it fills in things like the Great Lakes. Okay? And yes, there were glaciers. Or again, as Blair Gross was at Glacius, that were dragged across the continent, weighing uh, hectotons. And yeah. yeah, they cut rivers and they cut some small mountain ranges. It, the, the, the entire thing is scientifically explainable. And in Foundations Restore, they go like, look, the geologic evidence is, I kept saying geographic earlier, I meant geologic. Right. The geologic evidence is there. The soil samples from the middle of America and the middle of Canada basically prove that water was left in the wake of the glaciers retreating. And that water trail, the soil in Kansas is identical to the soil in Manitoba and Hudson Bay. So there's another element to this. Okay. You know what what do they what do they find? What kind of creature do they find in glaciers? Oh, what do they find in glaciers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what do we find? We uh, find woolly mammoths, right? You find what? Woolly mammoths. Yes. Okay. Uh, what do they find inside the mouths of woolly mammoths? Ooh, chickens. Mm -mm. Buttercups. Buttercups. Interesting. Yep. Buttercups. <clears throat> Now think about this for just a second. If it, you, all the depictions that we have of woolly mammoths is these these cold winter creatures that that make their way through the ice and snow, and that's the only climate they ever existed in. Right, right. and 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 of course, Cro-Magnon man chasing them with a spear. Yeah. Now, if they have buttercups in their mouths, there are several questions that need to be asked that aren't being asked. First of all, what was the climate like at the time that they were? The, the, the time that they died, the climate was such that there were buttercups on the ground. Okay. Well, if there were buttercups on the ground, how did they freeze to death? What happened in the span of time that they were eating to the point that they died? A flood. How did they go from eating buttercups on the ground to being encased in ice? Suspended in ice. A flood. Uh-huh. Here's another thing that we need to ask. How come the buttercups are still available to be found in their mouths? Mm. Because if the if the mammoth was killed, the saliva in the mouth would have broke the enzymes would have broken down what was in their mouth, even if so suppose they were killed and they just kind of laid on the ground for, you know, a couple of days. 
the enzymes would have caused those buttercups to decay very quickly. But instead, we can actually find the chewed buttercup petals in their mouths. Now, if they have chewed buttercup petals in their mouths and they're encased in ice, the other thing that comes to mind is that they were frozen instantly. Yeah, this is IQF for the uninitiated, <laughs> instant quick frozen, which is how yep. we get shrimp from the Gulf of Mexico these days. Right, right. So how is it that a woolly mammoth whose only climate was the cold winter and that's all it, it you know, it, it ate the bark of, of dead trees in order to survive, was eating buttercups frozen instantly to the point that those buttercups were preserved within their mouths. It's not possible. It's not. Unless they were frozen instantly. And then the only explanation that we have of rapid freezing is a flood. Oh, and by the way, these creatures did not drown. There is no moisture in their lungs. You know what killed them? What's they that? were crushed. Okay, death. right. They were crushed. So, if so they what were, happens? Okay, so they were crushed. They were crushed by what? The weight of water. Not just water, because that would, that would imply drowning. They were crushed by ice. So then as you watch Gaia or Pangea, as you watch her separate, some of the parts of each of the continents is going to rotate north towards the pole. Mm -hmm. As it rotates north toward the pole and the mastodons drowned uh, quickly, and during this quick rotation, remember now, there's no sunlight at all north. Uh, there's no sunlight at all on, uh, on, on, on the planet. As a matter of fact, we know that there was no sunlight because in Genesis, Noah tells us he saw a rainbow. Then when it finally stopped raining, he saw the bow, God's bow. Um, this water is then rotating. These very, very heavy creatures are then rotating. The ones that survive that we find are the ones that ultimately get crushed and frozen by ice. The, the rest of them they just dissipate like all the other mammoths, and there have been uh, fossilized remains of ginormous uh, mastodons and elements that are would be in some of the same fields or near the same fields that you would find dinosaur bones. Mm -hmm. So uh, this all tucks together very nicely and neatly. And again, when they say there's no other explanation other than billions and billions and billions, actually, your billions and billions and billions of years story is stupid. Right. <laughs> it doesn't hold up to the test of time. You can go it, it, the, the, the 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 very idea that continent remained in the same place that it is, and that it took the uh, however many billions and millions, or millions and millions of years for them to separate, we still have continental drift and you can measure it. Um, you might still have continental drift because you have the force of gravity and the rotation of the Earth. Right. I can explain that. And they do explain it. They're like, that's not continental drift. And why is the continental drift all going in the same direction? Yeah, they they don't that. tell you that. They don't tell you that. Mm -hmm. They don't tell you that the continental drift is moving in the same direction, which suggests one, to me anyway, centrifugal force, right? Like if you put a piece of paint, take a drop of paint, put it on a spinning top, take the string and round the spinning top up, what are you going to get? That paint is going to flay out and the, uh, across the direction of the spinning top. 
Well, let's take it a step further. How do you get continental drift from a central point that would have been the very center of this pan, this massive Pangea? Mm-hmm. How do you? How, how do you get how do you get continental drift from a central point where the the center point would have been the middle of of whatever this massive continent was? Well, unless I, you have a massive massive catastrophe. And so the Iceland meteor explains this. I think so. Well, now, where else on earth do we find iridium except from meteors? Because you don't find iridium. You can't find it. They took it. They got it from the moon. You can get iridium from the moon. Sure. So where else on earth is there iridium? I don't... In the Gulf of... Is there... Maybe there was a second meteor. Is there iridium, I want to say, in the Gulf of Mexico? Oh, I mean, we, we've had meteor impacts all over the earth for right. millennia. <clears throat> So, yeah, you would find the iridium there. I, I'm pretty sure you can find the iridium in, in uh, Tunguska, uh, where a massive meteor exploded in 1908. Yes, in, in, uh, Russia. in Russia, in Russia. So, uh, everything you ever wanted to know about dragons, we're afraid to ask. Uh, we threw in some uh, creation of the world, Noah's flood, uh, as they are always related. Uh, we were unable to, uh, to, to entirely explain the uh, the Giza pyramids, although uh, I think and there had, there is a movie. It's a documentary series about the Giza pyramid, and I don't know if that guy's one of us, but his whole theme for it was these were not built by modern day Egyptians. They couldn't have been, which is why. Again, let's go back to your theory, and we'll end on this because we're out of time. Uh, let's go back to your theory about the atmosphere being that much more rich. Sustaining that much uh, larger life, like the dinosaurs, which again, maybe Goliath was a holdover uh, from the <laughs> from uh, pre uh, from uh, antediluvian times, but it would also explain well, how could they have moved if their aliens didn't come and help them? How could they have moved these ginormous stones for the Giza and the other three pyramids that we still can't figure out how to move today? Well, if you had beasts like dinosaurs that you could hook ropes to. Right. Uh, I can explain it. You're thinking that the largest creature on earth that could pull something today, it's on land, is an elephant. Well, what if you had a creature that was five times the size of an elephant, was an herbivore, and didn't eat meat? And all you had to do was give him a healthy helping of <laughs> giant hay, and, right. and then he would work for his hay. Strap a ginormous set of uh, a very strong ropes, put it around the blocks, build the ramps, boom, the dino pulls the, the blocks. To me, and there's so much, uh, you know, stupid pagan uh, cultish mysticism around the, the Giza pyramids. To me, the Giza pyramids are, and God allow this, obviously, are a living testament to antediluvian man. That's what they are to me. And sure. when somebody says, you can't explain it, I can explain it. Ask Michael Hitchburn about dragons. <laughs> there, there we go. <laughs> and about real dinosaurs. There's your explanation for how they moved the blocks. And, and he also said, they were cut 20 miles away. How could they go? Again, you employ brachiosaurs. Yes, no. but do they take a pension? Uh, yes, uh, God gave them a pension. Uh, fascinating, fascinating. Bro, you got to write that movie, man. 
<laughs> I, I know, I know. You gotta write that in, in my spare time. <laughs> you gotta write that screenplay. But you uh, know, uh, there's something else that we have to consider. If man and dinosaurs were coexisting, and dinosaurs are basically long living um, reptiles, and man was living for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. it begs a question. If man was li- if dinosaurs were living for hundreds of years and the same atmospheric conditions applied to man and man was living for hundreds of years as it says in Genesis and if man was all sharing a common language what would man be able to accomplish lots well in fact what would man not be able to accomplish can you imagine a civilization of einsteins living for a thousand years all right part 2 coming soon <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh my uh my old radio boss Walter Sabo, don't ever end the conflict. Make them want more. Leave the airwaves and make them want more. Let's make them want more. There we go. Part two, we shall address that question. Wow, I could do this all day. This is so much fun, so fascinating. <laughs> I love this topic. It's so interesting and it's edifying too. And it just also happens to be very Christian. So uh I think we like we uh, uh, bro. We put all the boxes there, checked them all off with gold stars. We have earned a steak lunch. Sounds good to me. <laughs> all right. Follow Michael Hitchbarn at L-E-P-A-N-T-O-I-N. That's LaPantoIN.org. Hopefully we'll get back on our two-week uh, plus uh, Tuesday schedule. I'll see you in then, what, 15, uh, uh, 12 days. 12 days. Sounds good. All right, Michael, thank you very much. Fascinating conversation. Loved it, every minute of it. Oh, yeah, me too. Me too. This is my favorite topic. Okay, all right. Well, God bless you and your family. Tell us as we said hi, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. You bet. God bless you. God bless your audience. All right, thank you very much. Very much. Uh, folks, what other media platform gives you what you just heard? 